Go to John chapter 12 this morning. Let's get to work. Uh, John 12, and look in verse number 12. We, last off, we left off last week in verse 11, where John has told us a story of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus with oil, and everyone being aghast and just saying, what in the world are you doing? Why are you wasting this? And Jesus is like, this is not a waste. This is a good use. And from there, we're going to continue reading verses 12 through 20. Six this morning. So I want us to read this together and then we'll try to understand this. If you're newer to Harvest, let me just say, uh, we don't always preach through the Bible this way, but our preferred way and what we do the majority of the time is to pick a book of the Bible and just to walk through it verse by verse. The reason being it allows, uh, it allows the Bible to guide the conversation that I can't just tell you whatever I want. I need to tell you what this says and really it prevents me from hobby horsing certain uh, topics that I like more than others and it gives you a more uh, well-rounded balanced view of what God wants for your life when you, when you do it this way. At least that's what I'm convinced of. So let's read this together and we'll understand it. Verse number 12 of chapter 12. It says on the next day, so the day after this party where Mary had anointed the feet of Jesus, which this would be a Sunday. So if you follow the timeline, Saturday kind of was this party. And then Sunday, which is what we would call Palm Sunday, uh, you find this story. Uh, Much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass or donkey, sat thereon as it is written. So here's what was written about this in uh, uh, Zechariah, actually. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. I'm always thankful of verses like that that not only tell me that like the followers of Jesus didn't get it because there are times where I'm like, I don't think I get it. Uh, but it also tells me that his death, his burial, his resurrection, the glorification of Jesus is what that's all about. But that unlocks all of this and we'll get there in a minute. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. So there's a bunch of people that saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, and they're running around bearing record or witnessing, testifying that this is what Jesus had done. For this cause, the people also met him, for that they had heard that he had done this miracle. So this has generated a lot of interest in Jesus, that he raised Lazarus from the dead. But, verse 19, the Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world has gone after him. They're saying, it's not working. They, they say prevailing nothing. This isn't working. The whole world's following this guy. I mean, everybody's joining his team. Verse 20. Then there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida, of Galilee. That's a tough word to say. And desired him saying, sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew tell, uh, and Philip tell Jesus. Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now, I must admit at the onset this morning that 
I have found chapter 12 of John particularly difficult to study, uh, more so than the rest of the chapters thus far. The reason being that John generally has painted with very broad brush strokes. He has told us a story, and then off of that story has made kind of one big point, or maybe two big points. And the chapters have been big and long, but it's, it's been very broad brush strokes. Chapter 12 is, in my opinion, John taking a brush and just kind of dotting the pages over and over and over again. And it kind of feels like it's bouncing from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And like, how do I keep up with this? That Mary anoints Jesus with oil, and then they want to kill Lazarus. And then here come all these people with the palm branches. And then here comes Greeks. And then Jesus tells, has this weird answer to the Greeks want to talk to him. And then he tells them that the corn of wheat's going to fall into the ground. It just feels like it's all over the place. And my, my primary goal was to try to get... What's the big picture here? If you take all of these threads that John is weaving together, what does the tapestry look like? How do, how do we synthesize this and really get the overarching point of this? And I think that there is an overarching point of this. We're going to see it this week and next week. I think that what is happening here is what I would call the world turned upside down. That over and over and over again, there's these different stories, these little happenings where people come to Jesus and what they think is normal what they think should happen, what they think is just logical, Jesus flips it and says, no, not that. It's not crazy for her to give that away. No, he's going to go over and over and over again and really take the value systems of the world to take what people are thinking is logical and to, and to turn it on its head and to say, look, I'm going to show you a different way. So I want to show you this just kind of piece by piece by piece. First, I'm going to start with the donkey. So this is the story, verses 12 through 19, is the story of Palm Sunday. The Sunday before Jesus' crucifixion, just days before he's crucified, he comes into Jerusalem riding a donkey, but before he gets to the city gates, people meet him in the way, they get these palm branches, they start to wave, they start to shout, Hosanna, which means save us. They start to shout, save us, Jesus. They hail him as a king, and he rides into the city. This is one of the very, very few incidents that all four of the gospel writers give us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all account this exact story. But verse 16 tells us that the disciples of Jesus don't get it. That this happens... But they don't get it, and they specifically don't get it until Jesus is crucified. What's, what's happening here? So you have Jerusalem. It's Passover time. We learned last week. This means it's holiday time. There's a massive influx of people. Jerusalem is swelling four or five times the normal population. And there's a whole bunch of people that are hearing again about Jesus. And these people hear that he just raised somebody from the dead. There's a lot of interest that's drummed up. And they come to not just meet him and inquire of him. They come to hail him. And it tells us that they start to quote Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Verses 25 of Psalm 118 is Hosanna. So they say, save us. Verse 26 of Psalm 118 said, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So they quote these two uh, verses of Scripture, but they insert into the middle of this something that departs drastically from the Psalms. They insert in between there the King of Israel. Now, Jesus will quote a verse of his own in a moment, and he will call himself a king, but they hail him as a king. And suddenly we get the impression that they're inserting into this some of their own political agenda, that they're really thinking of Jesus as a liberator, 
that they're thinking of him as the one to throw off the oppression of the Romans, not just because they insert king of Israel, but they also begin to wave the palm branches. What's waving palm branches? Why would you do this? This was their version of a flag. This was their version of a flag that really represented rebellion and throwing off oppression. This was something that had been done for hundreds of years that as political leaders would step onto the scene to revolt against the Greeks or the Jews or the whoever it was, to revolt against them, that they would, they would wave palm branches to hell these political leaders. This would be like maybe a general coming down a parade who had led this fierce battle and had been this World War II hero or something and us all waving American flags and hailing him. This was something that as they would do revolts, they would typically make their own coins and start to say, we don't need your coins. We'll make our own money system. And the last two times they had done revolts, they had imprinted onto the coinage palm branches because it was this symbol of nationalism. It was this symbol of being free of oppression, being free of the yoke. And they wave, they wave these palm branches and hail him as king. So the, the scene is awash with political fervor. This is people hailing Jesus as their liberator. This is them really having a fantasy of Jesus. This is them wanting him to be something that he is not. And they're linking it to the, to the resurrection of Lazarus and this miracle. And here comes Jesus. On the one hand, they're right that he is a king. They're right that he is strong. Uh, the, the Pharisees say the whole world's gone after him. Kind of implying the majesty and the magnitude of who Jesus is. But on the other hand, and what Jesus really tries to press home, is that you have lowliness and you have weakness and you have meekness. Here comes your king riding a donkey's colt, riding a little young donkey, not a war horse. Riding a little donkey, and he quotes Zechariah, and the prophecy of Zechariah says, here he comes in meekness. This is exactly what Matthew tells us in Matthew's account of this, that Jesus quoted that. John tells us he quoted it too, but Matthew includes the meekness part. That here comes Jesus being held as the political liberator, the strong warrior on this little donkey saying, I'm coming meek and lowly. Far different than what they expected. Far different than what they would have anticipated. Here is, here's what we would know today to be an ideal king. It's a relatively new invention, pretty much uh, associated with the Western world, of thinking of our kings as both very strong yet very tender. The stories that have really stuck when it comes to kingliness through the ages, whether it be uh, Lancelot and King Arthur and the Round Table, uh, whatever, whatever story you want to think of that, that has a king, our kings that we like to think of that are near and dear to our hearts, both have strength, both have power, but are mighty in battle, but at the same time they're tender. At the same time they're, 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 they're lowly, they're, they're willing to, to take on the common man. Their eyes will be the first to flash with fury at injustice, but their eyes will be the first to cry at sorrow. Mixed into one, not one to the exclusion of the other, but mixed together. Where does this idea come from? Because it's, if you read history in reality, it's not there. Achilles wasn't strong and tender. He was just a barbarian. Other kings were just wimps. But how do you get both mixed together? You really find that generating the prototype of this being Jesus. This one who's coming strong, yes, yes, a king, yes, to save them from what really 
has them in bondage, but it's far different than what they anticipate. They had struggled with the, proph- with the prophecy from Zechariah for years. The Zechariah had said the king would come on a donkey. The king would come in meekness. And they had said, how could the one who's going to save us from what has us in bondage and let, and let us go to let the captives loose, how could this one be meek and lowly? How could it be a little guy? And they didn't understand. And Jesus is trying to teach them, here I come. And, the, and it says that the disciples finally get it, not that day, but several days later when Jesus dies. When Jesus dies and they're in darkness and they're in their weakness of their own, wondering, world spinning, all of a sudden it clicks and it registers with them. That's what he was saying. He, he wasn't here to free us from the Romans. He was here to free us from our sin. He was here to, to purchase salvation for us. What really has us in bondage is that this finally starts to dawn on them that here was, here was a lamb riding in Jerusalem who was a lion who would conquer their sin but was being presented as a lamb and they didn't want him to be a lamb at that point in time. They, they, they wanted to hail him as something altogether different. They had an agenda for Jesus. Now, what does that mean for us? Okay, great, that was for them. What does that mean for us? The best way I could put it is in a little story. It's an old story and it's a short story. But the story is called Palm Monday. And the story is about the little donkey who wakes up on Monday. And the donkey wakes up and says, yesterday was the greatest day of my life. They hailed me and they waved palm branches and they celebrated me, just a little young donkey. This was awesome. Today's going to be a great day. And the donkey walks into the marketplace and says, here I am. And the marketplace says, nothing. They just ignore him. He, that's weird. He walks into the banking area where they're, where they're exchanging monies. And he says, here I am. And they say, get out of here, you animal. And they throw him out. And the donkey runs back to mom, just befuddled and down and just, what's happening here? And mom says, little donkey, silly donkey, without him you can do nothing. You need a king to drive you. And the, and the point of this story, I think for you, for me, is that you have to, what I would say, open your gate, open the gate of your heart and allow him to ride a donkey in. Allow him to drive you. These people had an agenda for Jesus. They had, we'll help Jesus, we'll call him king, we will, we will want him, but John's going to tell us by the end of the chapter, he'll tell us that most people really were not true believers, they were not really following Jesus, they wanted Jesus on their terms. They wanted Jesus to do what they thought should be done. They wanted Jesus to complete their agenda. And when they realized that Jesus was not going to complete their agenda, that he wasn't going to operate on their terms, that they, that they didn't want him anymore, they forsook him and they cried, crucify him. That they left. And what Jesus is trying to communicate here that takes his disciples a while to get it, and it may take you a while to get it, is that he doesn't operate on your agenda, that he will be king, and that you, you're the donkey, you need him to drive you. You need a king to drive you. Then he goes on to say this about the Greeks. It says in verse number 22 that these, these Gentiles come, 20, 21, 22, here they come, and they find Philip, probably because Philip had a Greek name, uh, Philip was a Jewish guy, but he apparently had some Greek associations. And then Philip finds Andrew, who is the other one who has a Greek name of the disciples. And they, Philip and Andrew go to Jesus and say, Jesus, the Greeks want to see you. And here is Jesus' response to the Gentile people are coming and seeking you. Verse number 23. Uh, just pictures, okay? Put in your mind's eye. You're Jesus. Jesus, there's some Gentile people and some Greeks that are seeking you. And you say, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, I personally read that and just think like, 
<laughs> what, what, that did not follow. That this seems really disconnected. What, what does that mean? Why would you say that here when these Gentile people are seeking you? And if you're reading this just in little chunks, it probably doesn't make too, too much sense. But I don't know that John ever intended people to break this up in little chunks and, and read it, you know, every week. I, I think he really intended us to read his writing as a whole. And if you read it as a whole, we just came off of not too many verses ago that the Jewish leaders reject Jesus, Right? The, the Jewish leaders, those who have clout, those that know the Bible, they reject Jesus, they make him a wanted man, and they declare that we're going to kill him. And now you have the Gentiles, the Greeks, not the Jews, the, the Greeks, coming and seeking Jesus. This was, in the, in the first century, this was, it didn't happen. Gentile people don't come to rabbis. Gent Jewish people come to rabbis, but we're very close circle. This, this is not for them. This was not, okay, Jewish people for a long time thought of not just things as clean and unclean. Don't touch that, it's dirty, it'll make you unclean. They thought of certain people as clean and unclean. This is what Passover was all about. They were there before Passover to purify themselves, to make themselves clean. But the Gentile people were never clean in, a Jewish, in the Jewish mind. There was always a separation and a segregation and a wall between them. There was, there, was, there was never going to be one and the same. They were always divided. There was always segregation. There was actually, if you came to worship, the Gentile people were invited to worship with the Jews, but in their own little corridor. It was kind of a round back. There was a wall that separated the Gentile area and the Jewish area, and the Gentile people were not allowed in the Jewish area. That, that was a, a no-go. This is exactly what Paul references actually in Ephesians 2 when Paul says that Jesus is our peace and he made both one and he broke down the wall of partition between us. That Jesus actually did away with that. That, that there is no longer Jewish, Gentile, Greek versus Jew. That's not there anymore. But here come the Gentile people seeking him and Jesus says, my hour is not yet come, or my hour has come. His hour is always talking about his death, all through John. Up until this point, Jesus said, it's not the hour, it's not the hour, it's not the hour, which means not time to die, not time to die, not time to die. Now he says, hour's here, time to die. So what's happening? Here come these unclean Gentile people seeking him, and Jesus says, time to die. What, he, what is he saying is that this really is what my death is going to be all about. That this... Here in the craziest of circumstances, my own people reject me. But the outsider, the, the racial outsider, the religious outsider, the moral outsider comes after me and they receive me. My, my own people, the religious, they, they, want to, they want to kill me. But here comes the outsider wanting to, wanting to welcome me, wanting to talk to me, wanting to seek me. And what Christ does is he turns it upside down. He says, I'm not going to touch them and be unclean. No, this is why I came. This is my hour. This is my death. This is about them. What Jesus is doing is reminding his disciples, and this is a theme all through, all through the scriptures, that, I'll put it this way, you shouldn't partition the Greeks. That's a creative way of saying, in modern terms, Sunday morning at 10.30 or 11 should not be the most separated, segregated hour in the, in the week for America. Now, in many places it is. 
But it's a reminder to us, and this is, I must admit, this is one of my pastoral soapboxes, that if I did not preach through the Bible verse by verse, I would stand on all the time. But it's here, so I'm going to stand on it now. <laughs> I li- hopefully, two or three times a year, I get to stand on this and, and just make sure that we're clear. This is a moment where the Jewish mindset of Jesus saving everyone, this being expanded to the world, this including Gentiles or Greeks, and it not just being a, a Jewish political Messiah, would have, would have blown their mind. It was so far from what they thought that Jesus is saying that there is inclusiveness, there is not a separation, there is not a segregation that they can come, that this is what my death is all about. This is a reminder over and over and over again for us through Scripture that the gospel affects every strata of society. The best way I can put it is that here at our church, every Sunday, there should be the guy who dropped out of school sitting next to the guy who's a doctor. There should be the gal who grew up a homeschooler and feels guilty that she, you know, egged someone's house eight years ago, sitting next to the gal who painted the town red and has a criminal record. There should be the person who voted for Obama and the person who voted for Trump sitting next to each other and joining Jesus together. There should be, inside of the church, inside of those that know Jesus, not walls of segregation or separation. There should be a couple that's gearing up, that just went bow hunting, and they're getting ready for rifle season. They'll put the camo on, they'll grab their rifles, they'll put the deer urine on, they'll go slay for, for, you know, for their, their meat for the winter, sitting next to the couple that went to the symphony that thinks that, that that is barbarian, okay? That should be together, in the same place, enjoying Jesus, worshiping Jesus, having a good time together, those, the normal walls of separation. Now, we don't think in Jewish Gentile terms. We don't do that nowadays. But we do think in terms of upper class and middle class and lower class. We do think in terms of Republican, Democrat, or black versus white, or, or whatever ethnicity you want to throw in there. We do think in terms of male, female. We do think in those terms. And that, should, that stuff shouldn't exist. It shouldn't exist. When it comes to worshiping the Lord together, serving the Lord together, praying together, loving Him, that stuff shouldn't exist. It's supposed to be broken down. And here in this moment, the insiders are rejecting Jesus. The outsiders are welcoming Jesus. And Jesus says, this is, this is for everybody. My death, my burial, my resurrection is for everybody. These human constructs, and every, every culture has their own constructs. Every culture does. But those constructs should be torn down by the gospel. The gospel is designed to blow through all of that. Paul wrote this to the Colossians, and he talks about the first century constructs. He says there's neither Greek nor Jew. Then he says there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian, bond nor free. But Christ is all in all. Now, if I could modernize that for you, that's Paul saying in Christ there is no black versus white. There is no, I grew up in church versus I didn't. There, there is no, well, they used to party or, or they're just a redneck or educated versus uneducated or rich versus poor, or Republican versus Democrat. That's not, that's not it. Christ is all in all. That he's supposed to bond together and to break down the things that would otherwise normally distract us and separate us. And I would encourage you to do this. This is my recommendation to every single member of Harvest Baptist Church. If you're looking for a filter to process how do I categorize people, I'll give you one. If you, if you just can't help but categorize people, then categorize by this. Did Jesus love them enough to die for them? 
Just put them in that category or that one. Yes, did he love them enough to die for them or no? That's the only one you need. Because if he loved them enough to die for them, then who are you to be a better judge to say, well, you know, well, I mean, he loves them and he'll accept them and he'll welcome them and he'll receive them and he'll forgive them and he will be their savior and their king and friend and he'll do that, but not me. You a better judge? Am I a better judge? Let's be honest, okay? Most all of us, our grandparents did things or said things that shocked us somewhat, no matter what generation you're in. Most all of us have probably done things and said things that are contrary to this. But hopefully over the course of time, you learn that that's not supposed to be the way in Jesus. I'm very, I just saw this. I'm very thankful for the deaf section down here this morning that I got to go shake hands and say hey and, and socialize with people that's difficult for me to socialize with. It's tough for me to have a conversation. I know I can, I can sign my name and I can say good morning. I can, that's about it. But that's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that we're all together. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter your past, your pedigree. That doesn't matter. The gospel's supposed to unite. It's supposed to bond together. And, and here's a moment where it's, it's almost crazy that Jesus' own, His people, the people that know the Bible and the prophecies and are quoting Psalms and are quoting Zechariah and they're doing this, they reject Him. But the people that don't know anything, they're the outsiders. They come and they receive Him. And Jesus says, you know what? Those Greeks that are coming, yep, it's my hour. Time to die. He receives them. Then he goes on. By the way, it's not about tolerating people. Okay, let's be clear on this. I'm not talking about tolerating. I'm talking about love. Okay? Love will tolerate. I tolerate my children sometimes because I love them. Okay? Sometimes they're annoying. And I'm annoying to them sometimes too. Okay? R real life. Sometimes they, they drive me crazy. And I, t I told you guys yesterday, you know, they, when they give you a new baby at the hospital, they're like, you can have your baby, but just watch this video. It's called Don't Shake Your Baby video, okay? The video just says, don't shake your baby over and over again, like 18 ways. And the reason they tell you that is because you're going to want to shake your baby sometime. <laughs> like, they're going to just not stop crying and you're going to want to shake them, you know? But you love them so you don't, Right? When you love someone, you do put up. You do tolerate. But when you tolerate, it doesn't mean that you love. We're talking about loving. If they know Jesus and you know Jesus, love them. They're your brother or sister in Jesus. If they don't know Jesus, love them because they need to see the love of Jesus and accept Jesus. The end. All right, and I'm off my soapbox. Next, the ground. Okay, you see the donkey. You see the Greeks. Then you see the ground. Verse number... 24. It starts with, and this should grab your attention, verily, verily. This happens quite a few times in John's gospel, but that's meant to, to pop off the page. It's a way of Jesus saying, amen, amen. It's a way of him saying that this is solemn. This is critical. You should base your life on this. So he's going to tell them something that's deeply important. And this is what he says, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. Where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. These few verses here are meant to challenge you to understand what it meant for Jesus to fall into the ground 
and what it means for you to fall into the ground. For Jesus, it's pretty simple and straightforward. He says like a seed, like, like a kernel of wheat. This, this seed falls into the ground. The only way it produces life is if the seed dies and is buried. Then it can produce a great crop. It can produce lots of other life, a plentiful harvest. And Jesus says, that's me. I am the one who will die and will fall into the ground and be buried so that life can be produced in this room. You're seeing a, a small portion of the great crop so that life can be produced in my followers. I will give unto them life eternal. I'll give them eternal life. But I first am going to die. I first am going to be buried. We know that he, of course, raises. If I had not died, then there would be no adoption of sons. There would be no life eternal. There would be no gift of eternal life. That couldn't be offered. So I'm going to die. I'm going to take on the sins. I'm going to be buried. But then he says, for us, for, for me, Jesus, death is a necessary condition for life to be produced. But then he says, in a slightly different way, I want to apply this to you, my followers. And he says, I'm going to call you to not love your life, but hate your life. I'm going to call you not to be served, but to serve. Now, let me explain the love-hate thing, because that can throw us for, for a kink. I'm supposed to hate my life? Like, just, you know, what, am I supposed to be suicidal? Am I supposed to just have an angry face about life all the time? This is lost on us a little bit, because it was, it was an idiom that the Jewish people used over and over and over again. And you find it all through Scripture. I don't have time this morning to, to give you all the verses. There's an idiom that they use to basically say you deprioritize what you hate and you prioritize what you love. That when you, when you don't say, I love my life, but I hate my life, you're saying, I'm no longer prioritizing me, what I want, what my agenda, this ties back into Palm Sunday, my agenda, what I want, what, what I want to do, I'm no longer the priority, I'm no longer the center of gravity, the world doesn't revolve around me any longer, I now have deprioritized myself, I hate my life, I now have taken myself out of the running, and I, and I, I orchestrate my life around something else. I, this is what you would call dying to self. What he's saying is, fall into the ground, die to self, serve me. That's what I call my followers to do. And what he says beyond that is, if you will do this, just like I produced a crop and I produced fruit that's amazing and eternal life, you too will have something produced in your life if you will do this as well. Jesus is calling him... He's calling all of his followers that are there and today, you and me, to basically say, I'm a servant. I will be a tool in the hand of the master. I will gladly let his agenda rule. I will gladly give him control. I will gladly let him drive the donkey. I will gladly put him in the forefront. His mission's my mission. His goals are my goals. It's no longer all about what I want. It's giving Jesus Here's a simple way to put it. Not loving your life, but hating your life and serving Jesus is giving Jesus complete obedience and complete devotion. It's surrendering everything to him and submitting to him and saying, I am, I'm willing to do that. And the question I'd have to ask is, does that resonate? Like, are you anywhere close to that? Or is it, I mean, pastor, okay. Like, I mean, I like church, you know. I'll pray some, I read my Bible. I mean, I'm on Team Jesus, but I don't want to be crazy. Like, you know, I mean, my family, my friends, 
my coworkers, my neighbors, like if I'm like all out for Jesus, they're going to think I'm like this zealot. You know, that, that it's all that consumes my life. That's what my life revolves around. I mean, I've got to tone it down a little bit. I mean, give him anything like Mary did. There's nothing off limits when it comes to finances. Yeah, okay. Well, a lot of people live there. You may not say it, but a lot of people live there. In this, I'll just be kind of tepid. You know, I'll be, I'll be lukewarm. I like Jesus. I'm glad he saved me. I'm thankful. The choir song was awesome. It, it warmed my heart. But I mean, to not love my life, but, but to deprioritize my life and to make it all about him, I don't know, it may be too far. Not according to Jesus. And the reason we know it's not too far is because he's not asking you to do anything he didn't do. It's not like he didn't sacrifice his own life and die and fall into the ground. And he says, if you want to follow me, that's kind of what following me is is like you know how you follow the leader when they go there you go there well i'll die and fall into the ground so you die yourself and fall into the ground says you want to follow me this is what it is now once again it's a little different than what the crowd had anticipated for him that day a little different than what the crowd had anticipated for themselves that day but he says i'm gonna i'm gonna turn this a little bit and i'm gonna tell you be a servant don't don't try to don't try to Wiggle your way in, have an agenda, have an evil eye, do it for yourself. No, just serve me. Out of unadulterated, pure love. There's a story from the second and third century, about two to three hundred years after Jesus had risen from the dead, of a bunch of plagues. I guess we don't know if it's a bunch of plagues or one plague because we didn't really have the medicine to know exactly what the plague was. But there was at least a plague that swept across the cities of the Mediterranean which was kind of the focal point of the world at that point in time. And especially the metropolitan areas, the city areas where people were living on top of each other and contagion spreads more rapidly, people began to just die and get sick in droves. And as most people would, many decided, I'm going to leave the city and flee. I'll even leave behind my sick kin if I have to. I will flee and I'm going to try to get to more of a quarantined area where we're not all living and breathing on top of each other. So a lot of people did, but there was one group of people that in all these major cities across the Mediterranean stayed put. And the group of people that stayed put were the Christians. And the Christians stayed put to care for their own, but to also care for their enemies. Care for those who really despised them, did not like them, killed them, persecuted them. And they said, as they stayed tick, as they said put, that they had a, a lunatic of an idea that we are going to look at the dying love of Jesus and we're going to model that. And we're just going to serve. And what happened was not that God put a magical shield around them and that no one got sick and that they, you know, they were able just to serve. A lot of them died is what happened. But what happened is that they were actually able to help people. When people are sick, even if you don't have medicine, if you can just do some basic things, keep some food in their stomach, keep some clothes on their body, keep a blanket over them, a lot of them will recover. And they worked and worked and worked and they dropped like flies all the while and eventually the, the plague had kind of ended and the dust settled. And wouldn't you know it, countless unbelievers started to come to faith in Jesus. Countless people started to convert to Christianity. Churches began to just, you know, bloom people started to be added. And within a hundred years, Christianity was the major religion of the entire, metropo or, uh, the entire Mediterranean area. 
Within a hundred years of doing that, Christianity was the most prominent, most powerful even religion in the area. But how did it happen? If you were putting together a game plan, if you invented a religion and you said, you know what, let's put together a game plan to where we will take over this region and we will be the, the most widely accepted religion in the area. Let's strategize. How should we do this? I know. Let's go serve our enemies till we die. That would not be in your agenda, right? But these people who really eschewed power, eschewed favor, didn't want the influence, that wasn't what it was about. These people that just served authentically, lovingly, because of the sacrificial love of Jesus, wouldn't you know it, they went down, but they came up. Wouldn't you know it, that what, you, what the world says, if you want to go up, go up, climb the ladder. Put a couple bodies underneath you in the meantime, if you have to, it don't matter. Just do it at all costs, just win. Get the money, get the power, do whatever it takes. Jesus says, no, I'm going to flip all that. You, you want something in your life, I'm going to tell you, serve, follow, fall into the ground. Here's what he says, I'm done. Here's what he says will come if you will do this. He says there's three things, fruit, eternal life, and honor. He says in verse number 24 that there's, there's only fruit that's realized because of a seed dying and being buried. That's what produces fruit. It's a whole other sermon, but there's, there's only... A, there's certain fruit that will only be produced in your life by doing this. You will never find the peace that you want. You'll never find the contentment that you want. You'll never find the joy that you really want unless you're willing to be a follower of Jesus and say, you know what, I deprioritize myself. I follow you. Unless you're willing to make him your king and drive your donkey. He also says that there's eternal life, which would mean heaven for sure, but it would also mean on this earth he says in verse number 25, don't love your life, hate your life. And then he says, I'm going to give to you eternal life. And the eternal life is actually a different word. It's the word zoe. It, it's the idea of not just existence. It's the idea of fruitful, profitable, joyful life. It, it refers to your quality of life. It does refer to you get to exist eternally in heaven. But it also refers to you get a new quality of life here, now, and then. Have you ever been on a vacation where you, you grinded away the week before vacation to get it all done, meet the deadlines, make sure it was all squared away so that you can enjoy vacation, and then you sit on the beach and you sip a lemonade and you just, you know, this is living, right? You, what happened? You were existing before and you were existing then, but there was a different quality of life. It was really living when you were there. And Jesus says, you really want to live? You want a different quality of life? You want eternal life to live forever? I got it. But it's, it's only, it's only if you'll, through humility... Let go of yourself. Let go of your own agenda. Follow me. Make me your savior. Make me your king. That's the only way it happens. Then he says this, there's honor. The end of this passage ends with, him will my father honor. Now I just want to pause for a moment and let that sink in. Because you may not sense the, the radioactive nature of that. We as Christians are to honor God, Yes? And rightfully so. He's holy, he's glorious, he's majestic, he's perfect. He's, we honor God. This says God will honor you. Now it shouldn't really work that way. Because I don't know about you, there's not much in me that's really worthy of honor, especially coming from God. But Jesus says, if you will do this, 
something that will happen is there's actually honor from God. How? It's the gospel. It's the truth that Jesus, when he falls into the ground, takes your sin, your shame, your condemnation, bears it upon himself. Why? Not just so that you can be forgiven and the slate can be wiped clean, but that something can be added to your slate so that you receive his righteousness, so that you receive honor. Does Jesus receive honor and glory? Absolutely now. But when you become his follower, it's not just that all the negative is gone, it's that there's a positive that's added to your account and there's actually honor, there's, there's actually glory for you, not over and above Jesus's, but there's actually glory to be shared in. There's honor to be shared and it's given to you that you did not deserve in the least. There's completely grace that he says, if you will follow me and do this, I will give you honor. Now I want us to, to end today by having a, a time just to reflect and to think through this. Because there's a lot here and I'll admit that. But just to take a pause and to say, okay, Jesus was flipping expectations on these people over and over and over again. And we'll see it again next week. Here they were wanting him to follow their agenda, wanting him to be their political leader. And he says, this isn't what it's about. I'm, I'm riding a donkey here. I'm meek and lowly. And finally, when he dies, I say, that's what he meant. That's what he meant. He was our king. He was our savior, but not how we thought. He comes and he says, the, the Greeks want to talk to you. Yeah, let me tell you, it's time for me to die. This is what it's about. I'm opening it up. So for you, it may be, are you willing to open the gate and let him ride a donkey through your heart? For you, it may be that you just, you honestly, legitimately struggle with racism, segregation, wanting to prefer the people because they have more money or less money or whatever it is. Maybe you don't, but you find it comical when other people do. Maybe it's in probably the most important part of this text where he says, I'm going to fall into the ground, watch my sacrificial love, and why don't you do the same? Why don't you die to self? Why don't you serve with no agenda? Why don't you put other people first? Why don't you allow yourself to be sacrificed? Because as his follower, that's what he's calling us to do.